Hello, you are listening to the PhD Addicted to Research podcast. My name's Chloe, a current PhD student at the University of Bath. This episode, I'm joined by two of our podcast team members, Zoe and Marva, and we're going to speak about a recently published paper from Marva's PhD, which qualitatively explores patients' experiences of ketamine treatment for alcohol use disorder. We start off by discussing some background to the area before taking a deep dive into the results and discuss some implications for future research. We hope you enjoy. So um, here with me today is Marva and Zoe, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Thanks, Chloe. Uh, my name is Marva and I'm a PhD student at the University of Exeter. Hi, thanks, Chloe. My name's Zoe and I'm a PhD student at Liverpool John Moores University. Excellent. And we're here to discuss today um, one of Marva's papers from her PhD, which is focused on the role of ketamine in potential treatment for alcohol use disorders. So just to kick things off, Marva, if we want to just cover the basics, so could you let us know what ketamine is and maybe um, the distinction from ketamine and your other maybe classic psychedelics, so things like LSD and psilocybin? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, that's a very good point to start. So ketamine is a drug mainly known for its anesthetic and analgesic properties. Um, And in terms of its like mechanisms of action, it binds to glutamate's NMDA receptors. Um, So it also has strong dissociative effects. Um, And beyond its anesthetic effects, it's also been shown to have antidepressant benefits. And it's recently been applied to more mental health and um, mental health problems and substance use disorders as well. Um, And in terms of its similarities and differences from classic psychedelics, um, so one of the main differences is the primary mechanism of action. So as I said, ketamine mainly acts on the NMDA receptor of the glutamate neurotransmitter, uh, whereas the classic uh, psychedelics tend to uh, they bind on the serotonin receptor, so the 5H2A, so serotonin uh, neurotransmitter in the brain. Um, but I think so. Th- those are the primary mechanisms. So ketamine has effects on other neurotransmitter systems, including serotonin, but it has lower affinity binding than its NMDA receptor. Um, then it's actions on the NMDA receptor. Sorry, that's just quite a pharmacological, um, yeah, neurobiological. But yeah, I think in terms of like, one of the main differences is that. And I think um, it's taught that classic psychedelics have slightly different effects than ketamine. But I think what we see in our paper is that some of the effects that ketamine produces are actually quite similar to classic psychedelics in terms of the mystical effects and the mystical spiritual effects and um, you know the epiphanies that people have reported. So I think in my opinion, there are more similarities in terms of the acute effects um, that they produce than differences perhaps. But I think what is unique to ketamine is that dissociative effect. I think it's, it's my limited experience has got a bit of a reputation of being, well, the horse tranquilizer. You know, it doesn't <laughs> yes. sound as much fun as a lot of other drugs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think mainly it's known because it's been firstly developed as an anesthetic. So then, yeah, maybe it comes with that reputation. Um, yeah, so maybe it's not, yeah, it's not something that people initially think of as a recreational drug. Yeah. Okay, so that was really interesting. So as well as obviously being used as a recreational drug, can you tell us a little bit about um, ketamine's history of clinical use? 
Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, as I said, it's been developed as an anesthetic drug and it was sort of developed as an alternative to PCP, uh, which is another um, anesthetic and also recreational drug. Um, yes, it was developed in 1960, but very early on in late 1967, um, we see there's reports of recreational use of ketamine, but I guess in terms of other clinical uses outside of anesthesia and analgesia, it's been started to be used as an antidepressant drug. So there was a trial in 2020, 2000, not 2020, uh, which uh, was a really small trial looking at the effects of ketamine in a group of people with uh, depression. And from then on, there's been studies about depression, bipolar, suicidal ideation, anxiety disorders, uh, PTSD, eating disorders, and also substance use disorders. I, I would say the most developed area is probably depression and bipolar and suicidal ideation. And the rest of the areas more recently, uh, there's been more research in those fields as well. Yeah. I'm really interested what what led to, for example, the, the 2000 study in where they thought, well, we're going to try and look at ketamine to treat depression. Mm. Is there a potential mechanism that they thought was at work there? Or what, what potentially do they think happens in terms of the mechanism underpinning the therapeutic effect of ketamine mm. and things like a, addiction and maybe mental health as well? That's a really good question. I don't know what led them to look at it as an antidepressant in the first instance. I can't remember from reading the paper. I'm sure there was a, there was something that triggered it. But I think in terms of potential mechanisms, there are a few um, proposed mechanisms at the moment. So uh, there are perhaps some more neurobiological mechanisms. So we mentioned um, the binding to the NMDA uh, glutamate NMDA receptor and this is related to things like neuroplasticity and neurogenesis which is talked about a lot in the psychedelic literature um, and then also there are other proposed mechanisms such as enhancing the efficacy of uh, psychotherapy and enabling people to uh, engage with psychotherapy better perhaps um, there's also the acute effects of ketamine so these uh, mystical spiritual and dissociative effects and um, there is another suggestion about um, reconciliation of drug-related memories in relation to um, substance use disorders, for example. So ketamine also has effects on um, memory. And um, yeah, in one paper, they've shown that it can block reconciliation of maladaptive drug-related memories. So that could also be a mechanism, particularly in terms of substance use disorders. Yeah. Well, that all sounds really positive. Um... Are the, the are the risks associated with ketamine treatment? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, yeah, obviously there are a number of risks of ketamine. Um, you know, in terms of both acutely and also in the long term. Um, so in terms of recreational use, people can because of like the really rapid effects of ketamine, um, and the fact that it's transient, people can use repeated um, doses, and they might forget how much they've taken because of its amnes amnesic effects. So, yeah, there's risk of like perhaps accidental overdose or uh, prolonged um, intoxication in terms of recreational use. Um, and also in the long term, there is some studies showing cognitive impairments with daily and uh, prolonged use of ketamine. Um, there's a risk of ketamine dependence. So I think one difference is that most of the classic psychedelics, for example, um, they don't have the same addictive addiction potential as ketamine 
in the sense that it can lead to tolerance and withdrawal symptoms and people do report craving for ketamine. So that is also a risk, the ketamine dependence, but we don't necessarily know the exact prevalence of ketamine dependence in the population. Um, but I think, yeah, that is, a, that is a considerable risk, yeah. And there are a few other things like um, ketamine and bladder where people have um, yeah, difficulties with their like urinary tract pathologies and things like that. So yeah, it's not without risks. <laughs> but I'm guessing that um, these are generally associated with a much sort of longer term, heavier use than what would be the case in, in the study that yes. we're going to talk about. Yes, definitely, because it's more frequent use and in the long term, yeah, in terms of these risks. And I think in terms of perhaps more short-term risks, uh, there are some adverse physiological effects, like it increases your blood pressure, uh, but these kind of result um, quite quickly. And you also have the acute psychoactive effects and the psychotomimetic effects, so similar to uh, symptoms of uh, psychosis. But again, these resolve um, within two, two to four hours of having had the dose. So can we talk about this study, this wonderful paper that you've written, Marbo? Could you give us a brief introduction <laughs> um, just to the study itself and the, the trial that it took its data from? Ah, oh, that's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I guess the study is uh, interviewing participants who took part in the clinical trials. So these people were receiving uh, treatment for alcohol use disorders and they were assigned to randomly assigned to either ketamine or placebo conditions. Um, and they also received uh, either a psychotherapy, which was relapse prevention focused mindfulness uh, therapy or an alcohol education. So again, randomly assigned to those conditions. And we were interested in their experience of the trial and their acute experience of ketamine and how some of the experiences might be related to their outcomes and perhaps gaining a bit deeper understanding of how the infusions might have affected their relationship with alcohol or um, how it might have had any impact on their perspective on life and other things in the world. So uh, yeah, that's why we thought, you know, the qualitative data could be really interesting because you know with the with the quantitative data uh, which is um, being reported in a different paper um, you can see differences between the groups but that's mainly based on abstinence or percentage of heavy drinking days so I guess um, in some ways that can be uh, quite a crude, crude data so it's quite interesting to hear about people's experiences and um, how it might have affected their relationship with alcohol in a more nuanced way as well. How many people did you interview as part of this study and what type of analysis did you apply to the data? Mm. Yeah, so we interviewed 12 people out of 96 and these were the people who received ketamine in the, in the uh, trial. So out of 40, 48, we managed to interview 12 of them. Um, it was kind of dependent on who replied to our invitation. And in terms of the analysis, so we use reflexive thematic analysis um, because we were kind of interested in the patterns of experience across participants um, and also we it was kind of informed by our knowledge of what we might expect ketamine to uh, what ketamine's acute effects might be uh, but we still kind of we were also guided by the data in the sense that we weren't necessarily expecting the spiritual and mystical effects to be a prominent aspect um 
So, yeah. <laughs> and could you give us the um, headline findings? So just a really quick overview for anyone that might not be able to read the paper. I know it's quite, you find quite a lot of yeah. different themes and there's quite a lot of depth in it. So if you could give some top level stuff, that would be really helpful. Mm, okay. Yeah, I think it is difficult with qualitative data, but I think in terms of the themes, so we had six big themes and I think three of them, three or four of them were relating to the acute ketamine experiences. And then um, one of them was relating to participants' motivations for taking part. Um, so, you know, one of the findings was that uh, participants had varied motivations for taking part in a clinical trial of ketamine, um, you know, ranging from altruism um, to hitting rock bottom or uh, wanting to take part in a legitimate uh in wanting to take part uh, in a legitimate clinical trial that is being conducted at a university. So that was interesting. And then in terms of the acute experiences, um, so we found that uh, one aspect of the ketamine experiences was that they were there were some inherent contradictions in it. So the biggest, biggest contradictions were around um, the contradiction between the highly positive and the highly negative experiences that people had, and then also between the strong dissociation versus the feelings of connectedness and a unity with other beings that people reported. So that was quite an interesting finding. Um, other aspects of the ketamine experiences were around how it was rapidly changing and evolving. Um, and then also one theme related to the sort of the meaningful and spiritual aspects of the ketamine experience. And I think one of the other themes uh, was about the... Um, effects of the trial and ketamine on people's relationship with alcohol and uh, their perspective on life, some more transformative effects of the trial and the infusions. So that was another interesting part where not everyone was abstinent from alcohol, but um, they did report, you know, considerable changes in how they relate to alcohol, which we can talk a bit more about um, if you want. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really interesting and that kind of one of the, the importances of, of qualitative research is not just looking at those very kind of black and white findings is it, did you stop drinking, yes or no? You yeah. can look at people's, have, have your feelings changed around alcohol? Have your motivation changed? You know, has your relationship changed? Uh, so I think that's, yeah. that's a really interesting aspect. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I guess that is what we found in that that for some people, abstinence wasn't even a goal. So, you know, not necessarily everyone we interviewed considered themselves to have, um, or th they didn't consider abstinence as a goal for them. They thought alcohol, you know, the amount of alcohol they were drinking wasn't helpful in terms of their life and other, um, like other areas of life, but they wanted to cut down on drinking rather than be completely abstinent. So that's also another interesting point that people can have different goals around treatment. Um, and we might kind of miss that if we just focus on these quantitative outcomes. I was interested to see that um, there was one isolated case of ketamine use following the study. Mm -hmm. So alongside looking at the effect on um, people's alcohol consumption also followed up for uh, potential adverse effects or unexpected outcomes of the trial. I was wondering if that was a significant concern from a trial perspective or if that's something mm -hmm. that maybe warrants further exploration um, in terms of the potential of ketamine as a as a treatment aid yeah I think that's definitely an important point and that's something that needs to be monitored carefully in research because as I mentioned you know ketamine does have 
uh, addictive potential. Um, and we had another systematic review where we were looking at ketamine use for the treatment of mental health and addiction. And we were also looking at things like adverse effects and, you know, ketamine use or dependence following treatment with ketamine and there wasn't actually much data about this and um, a few of the studies that have collected data on ketamine use following treatment they didn't follow it over a very long time so um, this is definitely something that I think is important to you know follow up after a treat after a clinical trial or any other treatment um but yeah, so in the interview group, we had one person. And I think in the main trial, out of 96 people, there were six people who used ketamine outside of the trial. We don't necessarily have a diagnosis of ketamine dependence or anything like that. Um, and out of these people, I think half of them were not in the ketamine group. So they didn't go on to use ketamine because they were given ketamine. But obviously, you know, the trial might have influenced them and they might have been interested. Um so yeah, I think that's definitely an important thing to monitor. It seems in terms of uh, the number of people, perhaps a small risk, but you know, not something to minimize. And I think also what I would say is like, there's a lot of um, screening before participants take part in these types of trials. So I think, you know, they can't have, um, th they weren't um, anyone who had another substance use disorder, at least not currently at the time of enrollment in this trial, um, as far as I remember. And I think they, if they had a previous diagnosis of ketamine dependence or anything like that, they wouldn't have been eligible. I think they were fine to have tried ketamine, but not like, um, you know, long-term use. And I think most of the people actually in the trial hadn't like done ketamine before, even though nearly half of them had done other um, psychedelics. So yeah, I think there are, you know, it's kind of a combination of having adequate checks before the trial, but also following people up after trials, yeah. So kind of at the reverse of that, did you find that when perhaps recruiting to the trial that anyone was reluctant to take part because it was ketamine and because of those associations that I don't want to take another mm. drug or, you know, all the, the kind of bad things that you hear about in the media about it? Mm, that's a good point. I wasn't that involved with the recruitment for the clinical trial, uh, so I'm not entirely sure, but I think, you know, given the fact that half of the people, I think nearly half had tried LSD or psilocybin at least. So probably the people who were volunteering or who were getting in touch might already be quite interested, um, and maybe perhaps more open-minded to other treatment options, um, such as ketamine. So, um, yeah, I think perhaps also, you know, public's um, views on, you know, psychedelic drugs like ketamine are improving. So I, I think there is perhaps less stigma around it and people are aware that, yes, it can have uh, risks and addiction, addictive potential as well, but it can also have benefits. I think it's that it's a difficulty of... Um, reconciling those two things right like a drug can have benefits as well as harms it's about the context you use it in and how you use it right just a quick question potentially just drawing on this distinction between maybe people that had positive prior experiences of um, psychedelics do you think there's any possibility that when you were recruiting to the qualitative study that people that had more positive experiences of the 
ketamine infusion in the trial were more mm-hmm. likely to then want to discuss that in more depth because um, I know you do find some some really lovely quotes in your paper about thing you know the treatment being uh, sort of transformative for people and just wondering if you spoke to somebody maybe with a different experience if that could have mm. come across differently in the interviews or in the analysis that you did yeah yeah that's a really good point and I think uh, as we were kind of talking about it, cell selection to the trial is also a possibility, mm-hmm. um, as well as cell selection to the interviews. So yeah, it is probably more likely that if you had a positive experience or perhaps a more mom- memorable experience, mm-hmm. um, more, more note- noteworthy experience, then you might be more likely to uh, put yourself forward for an interview. Uh, we did have one participant who had... Uh, a more negative experience in the sense that they were quite physically sick with it and they actually couldn't continue with the treatment because of various reasons um so yeah that was one person who perhaps didn't necessarily uh, have the best best experience on the trial um but most other people you know overall described it as as a positive experience even though within that they've had some challenging experiences that you know we've talked about in the paper so yeah that is a possibility and I think uh, with the qualitative research um, yeah we're trying we're not necessarily trying to generalize we're we're not Mm. trying to say that this is everyone's experience because you know like you said if we talk to a completely different group within those 48 we might have had very different results so I think um yeah, this is a part of the truth. This is a selection of people's experiences. It's not the whole truth, yeah. What I'd really like to know going forward is what, what do you think the implications of this are? Um, do you think this is, obviously it seems to be quite successful, is this likely to be used more widely to treat alcohol use disorder? And what about you know, other, other implications of it? Um, yeah, I guess in terms of um, treatment of alcohol disorders, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's good to have more research on ketamine treatment and hopefully that can lead to more access to other treatments uh, for people. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is um, when I presented this talk at Chloe's group, actually, they were asking me, oh, do you think this, this is something that can be rolled out? And I think afterwards I thought about it. And what's interesting is that, so the ketamine administration, if it's IV, is done by an anesthetist, um, but the psychotherapy that's provided alongside it is not actually psychedelic specific. So it can be delivered by therapists without necessarily specific training on psychedelic assisted therapy or anything like that. So I think it would be helpful to have an understanding of, you know, the effects of these psychedelic drugs if you're going to be working with someone in that way but um you know this can actually make it more accessible because uh, you can provide it alongside a, a psychotherapy that the the therapist already has training in for example so um yeah this might make it more accessible and achievable to de- deliver to the general public um and i think like another interesting point about that is that ketamine is perhaps not a first line treatment, you know, it's per- perhaps a third line treatment, um, and it won't be for everyone in that sense. So it, it will probably be for people who've tried other treatments and haven't had, um, haven't uh, had benefits or have relapse or, um, yeah, haven't found it helpful, basically. 
Um, so yeah, I think that's also something to bear in mind in terms of you know whether we're going to make this um, accessible to everyone in the general public. Uh, but I think it'll be interesting to see if we can have a better understanding of how ketamine works and also what are the predictors of response. So what patient what patients with what characteristics might benefit more from ketamine treatments. So I think those will be um, some interesting things to look at in the future to improve um, access to ketamine treatment. I was just going to say it would be really interesting if, for example, as you mentioned, that person that felt really unwell and actually wasn't able to continue with the ketamine treatment, if there was mm-hmm. something we could use to say, actually, this treatment might not be right for this type of person. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's already some research that is looking at, you know, what clinical characteristics predict better response to ketamine treatment. So, yeah, I think that will be important going forward. Mm. And if someone in the UK wanted to access ketamine treatment at the moment, um, mm-hmm. what is the current situation regarding the use of it in either private or um, sort of NHS practice? Mm. So I don't think it's available on the NHS because I think initially NHS didn't deem it to be cost effective uh, because probably of the costs associated with it. But um, so there's a clinic called Awaken that have opened in Bristol and they're uh, thinking of opening more places across the UK. So they're going to be providing uh, on a private basis um, ketamine treatment as well as some other psychedelic uh, psychedelic treatments and I think there are a number of NHS trusts that do it on a paid private basis so there is the Oxford Health NHS Trust that I know of and perhaps a few perhaps a few others but with that one there's no psychotherapy provided alongside with the Awaken it's um infusions and the psychotherapy as well so yeah not too available um at the moment in the UK unfortunately it sounds like it's still it's still very early days so there's there's potential yeah yeah it is definitely yeah one thing I thought that was really interesting in your conclusions from the paper is the way you set out um, practical recommendations so based on the qualitative results things that you thought needed to be done better moving forward um, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite points was the inability of that term disassociative anesthetic to actually Mm -hmm. capture the range of diverse acute effects that were happening as part of these ketamine infusions you recommended the development of a new measure which captured Mm -hmm. a wider range of these acute experiences I was wondering whether there were any plans you had um, to take this forward, maybe as part of your PhD um, or maybe beyond PhD. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's one of the most interesting findings, as you said, um, because, uh, yeah, you know, it's just very... Uh, it is a shame to just define it as dissociative anesthetic because it has so many other effects beyond that. Um, so that is really interesting, I think. Um, and in terms of the development of the questionnaire, so I don't think I'll be able to do that as part of my PhD because I'm supposed to be writing out. So uh, that'd be definitely something I'd be interested in post PhD. Um, and yeah, I think you know one of the issues as well in terms of measuring ketamine's effects, it's not just the lack of measures about you know these other effects of ketamine like mystical and spiritual effects but also the measures we have for the dissociative effects are not perfect either and the reason for that is that for measuring the dissociative effects of ketamine we're using a questionnaire that's been designed to measure um 
dissociation as part of PTSD or dissociative disorders. And there is actually some research showing that uh, it doesn't adequately capture ketamine-induced dissociation. Um, so I think this is really important because there are some studies looking at, you know, whether ketamine's acute effects are related to, um, you know, improved outcomes in terms of mental health. But if we're not measuring them accurately, then... Um, you know, the results are not quite so reliable. So at the moment, there is not enough evidence to suggest that. But I think, you know, obviously, this is one qualitative piece of work. But, you know, my feeling from having done this work, I do feel like these are quite important, whether the dissociative or the feelings of unity and feelings of connection with other beings, people do seem to report these as quite important. So I think, yeah, going forward, we need better measurements of these experiences so we can understand the uh, mechanisms of treatment better Mm, absolutely and it sounds like um input from people with lived experience of taking part in those infusions would be especially important for yeah thinking about what needs to actually be in those measures when when they're filling them out yeah yeah definitely and i think just generally interviewing participants for this has kind of informed us about what we might do in a future clinical trial as well you know in terms of uh, preparation um, and also post infusions I think that's also been quite interesting um, insights does anyone have any other questions from Margaret I feel like we've grilled her about every inch <laughs> of this study <laughs> yeah that's, that's, it's been really interesting I don't have any specific questions I think just maybe say well done oh yeah. thank you well done massive well done such a such a good paper oh and it so. was really nice to see the qualitative side of it. So, like I say, I don't know I've mentioned it, but I don't think that is kind of done enough or presented that well enough. So, yeah, well done. Ah, oh, thank you. So, because um, no one has any other questions, um, <laughs> we will let Marva <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah, I'll just say thank you. you no, know, um, yeah, it was a really interesting discussion, and thanks for your questions as well. Okay, that's all from us. A huge thank you to Marva and Zoe for coming on the podcast today. If you want to find out more about Marva's paper, we've included the link to the open access paper on the podcast page, so you can check it out if you want to. Thanks for listening, and remember, if you want to hear more from us, make sure to hit that share and subscribe button.